We ask our Heavenly Father that you might now speak to us by your Spirit as we look at your Word, that we would understand more about the ultimate church as we fix our eyes on Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. If you'd like to follow along uh, in the outline, you can use what you were handed as you came in the door. If you're watching online, then you can go to that website, docs.jambrewanglican.com, and can see the outline there and download a copy as well. Well, if you could design the ultimate church, what would it be like? If you had unlimited money and any block of land anywhere, then what would you do? Maybe you'd start with a huge auditorium with the latest in audiovisual technology. But maybe with those lounges they have in gold class. You know, at Hoyts, where you can lie back, perhaps. Uh, stunning architecture, beautiful interior design. Maybe that's what you'd do. Maybe you'd also have a wonderful, huge, big undercover car park with more spaces than you'd even want to fill. Uh, you'd have cutting-edge kids and youth ministry with the sort of things that would rival Disneyland. And a short walk away, you'd have restaurants and function rooms and conference facilities, kind of like when you go up to Darling Harbour up there. And then we'd have the offices out the back, kind of things that the next time Apple needs to build something, they, they go to our church and say, now, what are they doing? It'd cost millions and millions and millions of dollars. And it'd be amazing. And it'd be the ultimate church. Or would it be? Maybe you're a bit like me and you think, well, I don't know if we're in the ultimate church, but I kind of like the church we're in. 153 years old, this beautiful bird right here. And, you know, a hall that's getting a bit of a spruce up at the moment. I love our church. I love our gorgeous landscaped grounds. Thank you to all who have been involved in that ministry. But what if we got, a, if it all somehow these buildings needed to be replaced? I'm not going to say anything about what the options might be because we're not going to do any of those, obviously. But I'm, you know, I'm just like, you know, we don't want fire or we don't want wind, we don't want meteors or anything like that. But if it all burned to the ground or whatever, we got a massive insurance payout, what would we build? What kind of church would we do? Well, in today's chapters in the Bible, we're going to see what really is the greatest religious building in all time. It's the the ultimate church. It's the world-famous Temple of Solomon. And we're going to read about it in glorious detail. Now, you might be thinking, uh, why would I worry, why would I be interested even remotely in sitting and listening about the construction and design of a really, really old stone building? Somewhere in the Middle East that's now destroyed. Uh, why would I care? I can understand why you might be thinking that way. But I want you to encourage you not to tune out, because I think that as we look at this building, we will find out some wonderful things about our own Christian life, and we'll find out what God is like and how he relates to his world. But how is it possible that the construction of an old, old temple could possibly be relevant to us today? You might be asking that question. It's a good question. Well, the reason is that as we read the Old Testament, we need to remember that it is Christian scripture. The Old Testament is Christian scripture. The Old Testament is as much part of our Bible as the New Testament. And the Old Testament helps us better understand the New Testament. 
And that's because the Old Testament shows us the plans and the dreams and the promises that are then fully fulfilled in Jesus in the New Testament. The Old Testament kind of provides us with a two-dimensional black and white drawing. And then we get to the New Testament and we see it in 3D and in colour. But how does that happen? And what relevance does it have for a fancy old stone building for us today? Well, as we turn to the New Testament, it often talks about the temple. And it often talks about the temple in Christian ways. Have a look here from 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 4 and 5 says, You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honour. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the meditation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. That's from the New Testament. And it's talking about followers of Jesus. It's saying that you and I, in a strange kind of way, are actually stones, living stones, living stones in God's temple. But we also read other things about the temple in the New Testament. Here's something John, uh, we read in John's Gospel. Jesus says, all right, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. What, they explain? It's taken 46 years to build this temple and you can rebuild it in three days. But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. That's in the New Testament. Already he's thinking temple isn't to do with physical buildings. It's a spiritual thing. And so we see that Jesus is the temple. And so are we. Jesus is the temple and so are we. So what does it mean to be the temple then? Well, that's why we need to read the Old Testament. That's why when we have a look at Solomon, when he got around to building the thing, and he tells us a bit about what it's like, you get to know what you're actually like. You get to know a bit more about what Jesus is actually like. And strangely, strangely, strangely enough, you're going to find that out when we talk about a building made of wood and stone. How does that work? Go figure. Well, you'll see in just a moment. Because it's a kind of another way to answer the question, where did I come from? Where did you as a Christian come from? And the answer to that, or one of the many answers is, have a look at Solomon's temple. That will help you. We're looking at 1 Kings chapters 5 and 6. Chapter 5 verse 1 begins with this. It says, King Hiram of Tyre had always been a loyal friend of David. When Hiram learned that David's son Solomon was the new king of Israel, he sent ambassadors to congratulate him. Yes, yeah, so what? What has this got to do with everything? Well, the first thing to notice is that Tyre was outside of God's kingdom. It was about 160 k's north of Jerusalem on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. If you've got your little outline there, you can see a little map. You can see out there, top left-hand corner, it says Tyre, and you can see down the bottom, Jerusalem. It's kind of like the distance of Nowra up to Sydney, if you want to get your heads around that kind of distance, okay? 
And at different times in the history of God's people, Tyre represented opposition to God. They were the bad guys. But right now, they're the good guys. Because we read that the king of this place called Tyre was a loyal friend of David. Another translation, the ESV, puts it in a different way, which is a bit more literal. It says, Hiram always loved David. Interesting, isn't it? That one king always loved the other king's dad. Now, that's a little bit weird. Well, it is in a sense, and I can see that's why our translations say, you know, he, he, uh, he honoured him, you know, he's devoted to him, all that kind of stuff. But you see, the idea, what we see here is that, that the king of Tyre loved the Lord's king. He had a deep love. It's a bit like how you can have a love for Jesus, the king. It's not a Valentine's Day kind of love, but it's a love that says, I honour you. I follow you. I submit to you. I cherish you. Or as it says in our translation, that, that he had been a loyal friend, that idea of love. There's wonderful peace here between these two world leaders. And that spirit of unity led King Solomon to send this message back to Hiram. He said to him, Now you know that my father David was not able to build a temple to honour the name of the Lord his God because of the many wars waged against him by all the surrounding nations. David could not build until the Lord gave him victory over his enemies. King David was amazing. He had some amazing flaws. But on the whole, he was an amazing king of God's people. But he couldn't build the temple. Really, really wanted to. But God said, you're not the man to do that. That's not going to happen. You want to build a house for me, but that's not going to happen until God's king has victory over the enemies, until God's king brings peace. And only then can God's house, the temple, be built. And that's what happened with Solomon. Verse 4. He says, but now the Lord my God has given me peace on every side. I have no enemies and all is well. Something's changed. David said, Lord, I want to build your temple. He says, not till there's peace. And Solomon, what happens? There's peace. And he thinks, that's the trigger. Let's build this temple. And so verse 5, he says to King Hiram up in Tyre, he says, So I'm planning to build a temple to honour the name of the Lord my God, just as he had instructed my father David. For the Lord told him, Your son, whom I will place on your throne, will build the temple to honour my name. Solomon knows that this is the moment when God's promise to his father David will come true. He is living out that fulfillment. That what was promised there in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is about to happen. The promise to David is now fulfilled. This is kind of like hairs on the back of your neck sort of whoa experience if you've been reading through 2 Samuel. If you haven't been, you're thinking, yeah, well, convince me. Well, let me convince you. This is a thing. This is a moment right now. But the problem is, the peace of Solomon is only short-lived. It's going to go from bad to worse. Um, the peace with his enemies is a really just a foretaste of deliverance. It's really, and the temple that he's going to build is really just a, a foretaste of the presence of God. And we've got to keep thinking of that as we're reading this. 
But even with all that in mind, Solomon asks King Hiram from Tyre to, to give him some workers and to give him some nice stuff that he can build the temple with. And so verse 6 he says, Therefore please command that cedars from Lebanon be cut for me. Let my men work alongside yours and I'll pay your men whatever wages you ask. As you know, there's no one amongst us who can cut timber like you Sidonians. Solomon wanted the very best. And he knew if he wanted good timber, he had to go to Tyre. And so he did. He, he didn't even sort of say, well, you know, what's your best price? Well, let's, you know, sharpen your pencils. It was just like, tell me what you want. You're the guy who delivers the goods. I'll get it. I'll pay it, whatever it takes. He wasn't cutting any corners. And that's the way he built the whole building. But how did King Hiram, the guy who loved King David, respond? Verse 7, he said when he received Solomon's message, he was very pleased and he said, Praise the Lord today for giving David a wise son to be king of the great nation of Israel. Hiram's like, this is great. I get to be part of building the temple of the Lord. I'm so excited. It's the very thing that, that Solomon's dad wanted to do and I actually get to be a part of that action. But more than that, have a look and see what Hiram says. You might have missed this, but I want you to zero in on this. He says, praise the Lord. And can you see the word Lord there is in capitals? This is a bit nerdy, but, but that is when you get in the Bibles the special name for God. We, we sometimes might use the word Yahweh, or some translations will say Jehovah, but it's the very, very special name. It's not just praise God for giving David a wise son. He's actually saying, blessed be Yahweh. Blessed be the Lord. King Hiram is actually praising the Lord. Here's a guy outside the kingdom, physically, and yet he's saying, Solomon, I love the king, God's king, and I want to praise your Lord because he's my Lord, so it would seem. No wonder he's so thrilled to be part of it all. So he sends this reply to Solomon. He says, I have received your message and I'll supply all the cedar and cypress timber you need. My servants will bring the logs from the, Medi from the Lebanon mountains to the Mediterranean Sea and make them into rafts and float them along the coast to whatever place you choose. That's pretty smart. Then we will break the rafts apart so you can carry the logs away. You can pay me by supplying me with food for my household. It's pretty clever, isn't it? How do you get all this timber from Sydney to Nowra before they invent trucks and stuff? Make them into boats. Float it down. Break it up when it gets to Nowra, and there's your wood all ready to go. Pretty clever. Pretty good. And the peaceful relationship with the timber king paid off. Verse 10. So Hiram supplied as much cedar and cypress timber as Solomon desired. In return, Solomon sent him an annual payment of 100,000 bushels of wheat for his household and 110,000 gallons of pure olive oil. So the Lord gave wisdom to Solomon, just as he had promised. And Hiram and Solomon made a formal alliance of peace. It was a good deal, a good deal for everybody. And the best of all was that the Lord gave Solomon wisdom. Remember, what is it that Solomon wanted? Did he want wealth? He didn't ask for wealth. He said, I want wisdom. And he's going to get a very, very nice bunch of wood and wisdom. It's all happening. But more than that, he's made peace with a country that would normally be an enemy. 
They've got this covenant. They've got this promise. They've got this deal. They've got this treaty. And so we see that the Lord gave Solomon peace and wisdom. What joy! And so with all this good news, we now read about the workforce that Solomon sent to produce the raw materials. Uh, King Hiram said, look, don't worry about it. I'll get my guys to do it. It'll be sorted. And Solomon said, no, 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 no. Like I said, I want my guys to come up with you and sort it all out. So we read in verses 13 to 14, King Solomon conscripted a labor force of 30,000 men from all Israel. He sent them to Lebanon in shifts, 10,000 every month, so that each man would be one, home, one month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of this labor force. Well, it doesn't sound quite as fun as it was, maybe. Especially if you're amongst the 30,000 who might have had jobs doing other things and suddenly it's like, I don't know what you were doing before and I don't really care. You're now going to spend seven years building the temple. Uh, That's the conscription. Now, it's not slavery as such. Although there were complaints down the track about how some of them were treated. But the thing is that... Like a time of extreme war, when a leader will say, I can script people for the army, it's that important. Solomon realised that this temple was that important that he'd say, I need you to drop what you're doing and build the temple. It's that important. And so he's now got three teams of fly-in, fly-out workers. One month there and two months at home. Or literally, it says in his house, which might have meant that they had one month up there and then two months in the house of the Lord building the temple. That's quite possible as well. But anyway, there were lots and lots of workers. We read this. It said that Solomon also had 70,000 common labourers, 80,000 quarry workers in the hill country, and 3,600 foremen. (laughs) That's how many bosses they needed to supervise the work. At the king's command, they quarried large blocks of high-quality stone and shaped them to make the foundation of the temple. Men from the city of Gabal helped Solomon and Hiram's builders prepare the timber and stone for the temple. It was a massive operation, and they didn't cut any corners. I think that's true, yeah, literally. Or, or yeah, But they, they were not going to do anything to try and, and just sort of say, oh, I'll still be right, mate. That's something that they never said over there. They weren't Australians, but they, even if whatever the, the Hebrew word for she'll be right, mate, they didn't say that either because they wanted it to be the best it possibly could. The foundation needed to be as good as it could be. Because I'm sure they were hoping that this temple would last forever. But it wasn't. It didn't. It was destroyed. Spoiler alert, sorry. (laughs) We'll get to that in, in a long time. But the point is that it did get destroyed. But the temple that it foreshadowed will never be destroyed. Because that temple is Jesus. Remember I told you that a little bit earlier on? Jesus is the foundation stone. And that's why the true temple of Jesus will last forever. Anyway, now they've got all of the supplies from Bunnings. They can start the building. We get to the next chapter. We'll move in faster. Chapter 6, verse 1. We read that it was in mid-spring, in the month of Ziv, during the fourth year of Solomon's reign, that he began to construct the temple of the Lord. Got all the stuff. Let's get building. This was 480 years after the people of Israel were rescued from their slavery in the land of Egypt. He's been king for how many years? Four years. And now he's ready to build the temple. 
but it seems to coincide with a very important moment in the history of God's people. 480 years. According to a book from someone smart, uh, that's 12 times 40. 12 times 40 years since the Exodus. They're two very significant numbers amongst God's people. But whether that's significant or not, the key thing was it was dated back to the Exodus. That is the moment when God rescued his people. That was the moment when he rescued his people by grace. They were in slavery in Egypt under the rule of Pharaoh. Signs and wonders and all sorts of tricks. And God saved them. And now 40 years times 12 later, finally there's a permanent building for the temporary tent that had been the place that represented the presence of God. Friends, this is an epic moment for God's people. If you blinked, you might have missed it, you know, 480 years, blah, blah, blah. But this is an extraordinary time. Uh, In fact, as John Woodhouse notes in his commentary, he says, this is the only event in the Bible that is dated in terms of the number of years from the Exodus. Interesting, isn't it? The Exodus was the beginning of something, and we're about to hear the end. That is the goal or culmination of that great act of redemption. Back then, the Exodus, and it's all leading to now. In fact, they had a song that they wrote when they were out of Egypt, and they're like, woohoo, and they sang this, and this is the last bit of it said, You will to Lord, you will bring them in and plant them in your own mountain, the place, O Lord, reserved for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, that your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever, and that's the end of the song of Moses. That's what they're looking forward to. And they're looking forward to what will be 480 years. And then when you get to the other end, you say 480 years back. Was a, it's a perfect arc. It's like a, like a whole, you know, starts there and ends there. And we are right at that spot. Right here we see that God has delivered his promises in full. And you, as you're reading this, as was the case with me, you thought, yeah, 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 yada, 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 480 years, yeah, whatever. And, and you stop and look and go, whoa, this is a thing. And they're about to build the temple. So what's it going to be like? I'm not going to go into every verse, but I'll show you a few. Talks about the size. Verse 2. The temple that King Solomon built for the Lord was 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, 45 feet high. Think of a basketball court. But instead of being the full width of a basketball court, it was kind of like two-thirds of the width. So it's like a same length as a basketball court, but a bit, quite a bit skinnier. Uh, There was an entry room at the front and stuff and the rooms down the side. Verse 5, skip to there. He built a complex of rooms against the outer walls of the temple all the way around the sides and the rear of the building. So you've got the temple in the middle and then you've got rooms around the side. Even back then, architects wanted to put lots of storage into a building. Okay, So that was what they did there. And these rooms had different sizes and they kind of looked like steps and various things. Verse 7, the stones used in the construction of the temple were finished at the quarry. This is interesting. So there was no sound of hammer, axe, or any other iron tool at the building site. Interesting, isn't it? You might have two words for me. Who cares? Well, let me tell you, it's a thing, right? Okay. They, they wanted this construction site to be a place of peace and serenity. Imagine that. Interesting. 
You turn up and there, there are no tools. It's just like, just bring the stone over here. Thanks, mate. Smoker. Okay, no worries. Even the construction was peaceful. They just fit in everything beautifully. It's kind of a, a little bit like a, a massively big Lego kit. Okay, Everything just it's kind of like, you know... Oh, that one over there. Oh, it's beautifully. That's what they're doing. There was a sense of awe and reverence, even as they're building the building. Then we read about the ceiling, verse 9. Uh, Solomon put in a ceiling made of cedar, beams, and planks. Uh, nothing there about gyprock or anything, about it, but something really fancy with the wood. And then we pause. Oh, hang on a second. I want to hear more about the temple. Well, God talks and he says something to Solomon at this point. He says, the Lord gave this message to Solomon concerning this temple you're building. If you keep all my decrees and regulations and obey all my commands, I will fulfill through you the promise I made to your father, David. I will live among the Israelites and will never ever abandon my people Israel. See, it's one thing to be a part of the ultimate religious building in history. But if God's king doesn't actually follow God, then it's just a big museum. It's just a big warehouse. See, the Lord is the one who rescued his people from Egypt before he even gave them the law at Mount Sinai. What happened? Grace came first. We've got to keep remembering that. In the Old Testament, New Testament, grace, God's gift, came first. But as they live as God's people in God's place, their king needs to live under God's rule. God's king needs to follow God. Duh. God's king must not reject God. Yeah, tell me something that I should be surprised about. The thing is that even if God's people live in God's place, it's no deal if their king doesn't follow God. But we see more grace. Because the book of 1 Kings and the rest of the history of Israel show that God's kings often didn't keep all God's commandments. You might have been thinking, oh, hang on a second, there's a deal here. If they don't perfectly keep it, then it's not going to... Mm. God says, I will still show you grace. And that is because, in a real sense, even though he was talking to Solomon, there's a sense in which he had in mind Jesus, who did keep all the decrees and regulations and obey all God's commandments. Because Jesus kept all those things, he fulfilled for all time the role and responsibility of God's king. He was the king they needed. And this is what he needed to do. And we understand it all because we're looking at one kings when we get to it in the New Testament. And because of Jesus' obedience, God kept his promise, which was verse 13. He says, to live as the, amongst the Israelites and never abandon his people Israel. This is a word of great comfort. God never abandoned his people Boy, is he patient. So many times it's like, oh, are you kidding me? Forget it. All bets are off. Let's go home. You go home, I'll go home. We'll, we'll, we'll tear up the contract. 
But no, that is amazing grace. But not only did he not abandon his people, he also said that he'd live among them. He'd live among the Israelites. That is what Jesus did when he came. In John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became human and made his home among us. Quite literally, he tabernacled among us. The presence of God, the temple, is actually there in Christ. You'd think that God would say, forget it, mate, I'm out of here. But no, he sent Jesus. God kept his promise even when we rejected him. And friends, that is great comfort for me. I'm sure it's great comfort for you. This is amazing grace. You you think it's all dependent on you delivering the goods? On your faithfulness? Well, if that's the case, you are in a whole hole. You're in a whole world of pain, as am I. But this all hangs on the faithfulness of the faithful king, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Well, a couple more things about the temple, a few things inside. This is interesting. We read about a special bit of the temple, verse 16. He partitioned off an inner sanctuary, the most holy place, at the far end of the temple. It was 30 feet deep and was panelled with cedar from floor to the ceiling. So think of that basketball court, the back third is the most holy place. 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet, 10 metres, 10 metres, 10 metres. And in this, this most holy place, um, uh, it, it was sectioned off in a special way. It was where the high priest would enter, and only once a year, and it was where the very presence of God was. We read all about this in the book of Hebrews when you get to it. But because in it was the Ark of the Covenant... It meant that that was where the presence of God was. And there's heaps about that already in 2 Samuel and 1 Samuel. But then we want to be sure that we understand how valuable it really is. (laughs) Because read this. Then Solomon overlaid the rest of the temple's interior with solid gold. As you do. Get the builder to spec that up for you. Oh, well, what would you quote? How about not so solid gold? And he made gold chains to protect the entrance to the most holy place. Wow. That's a lot of gold. This building was extravagant, make no mistake. But not only the gold would have taken their breath away if they happened to see inside that room. Have a look, what else? Verse 23, he made two cherubim of wild olive wood, each 15 feet tall, and placed them in the inner sanctuary. (laughs) Okay, cherubim. They're kind of like big winged things, right? 15 feet. You know, what am I? Nearly six. Uh, So it's kind of like two and a bit of me, like basically all the way up. And they're as wide as they are tall, and they're in this 30-foot wide thing. These are two massively big wooden bird things, right? They would have filled up the whole room. Hard to imagine, isn't it? But that's what happens as you go into the most holy place there. And he placed them there. And the whole idea about the cherubim is... It it almost seems like what he's done there is he said the cherubim that is sitting on the Ark of the Covenant, that that is where God's throne is. And so we're going to make a room that's going to have a massively big set of these things. I mean, have a look at Psalm 99. It says, the Lord is king, let the nations tremble. He sits on the throne between the cherubim. Let the whole earth quake. Solomon is like, okay, well, I mean, it was God's design given to David, given to Solomon. But the thing is, it's like you've got the little ark and the little cherubim. It's like, well, let's upgrade this. 15 feet, two of them, massive. 
Because there, the inner sanctuary, was God's throne room. And all around the temple were garden things. It mentions it very times. I'll skip over a few. But verse 29. He decorated all the walls of the inner sanctuary and the main room with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. Well, that's nice. Why did he choose flowers? Was it kind of like the thing that everybody had on Instagram at the moment? It's kind of like, well, flowers are a thing. Okay, how very, you know. No. There was a reason for that. Why do you think a garden might feature in the temple. Can you think of a famous, famous garden? The Garden of Eden. Now, what happened to the Garden of Eden? They walked around in the presence, the presence of God. God was there, and they hung around with God, and they were naked, and they felt no shame. They were in the presence of God. And then that all went terribly bad. But here's an idea of of how... That, in a sense, is being recreated by God here in the temple. Pretty cool. Fun fact. Anyway, the doors are described, verse 32, more cherubim, palm trees, open flowers, and more gold. Yeah, all of that. And the walls as well, 36. The walls were built so there was one layer of cedar beams between every three layers of finished stone. It's an amazing building. And that's the end of the temple tour. And the last verse of the chapter says the entire building was completed in every detail by mid-autumn in the month of Bull during the 11th year of his reign. So it took seven years to build the temple. Seven years and it's finished. Seven years and he can rest. You think, is is that just a coincidence? You've got the seven days of creation, the seven days of seven years of the creation of the temple. Maybe, maybe not. I think in all of this, whether it's the flowers and the fruit and all these other things in the temple, I think we are starting to see the reverse of the curse. We're starting to see some hope, some hope that God will be amongst his people again. And there's hope there. See, we see God living amongst his people by grace. We see God's people living in God's place under God's rule. And at its very heart is what must have been the ultimate church of all time. Perfectly crafted, extravagantly furnished. The ultimate church, you would say. And yet it was never supposed to be about the building. It was only ever supposed to be about God. And sadly, God's people missed the plot. Because around 470 years later, this beautiful temple was destroyed. And then another temple was built 50 years later, but it was kind of just a bit of a knockoff. It wasn't nearly as good. And then a third temple was built around 400 years later, about 20 or so years before Jesus was born. But none of them, not even the first, would match the greatest temple of all. And that temple, that greatest temple, is Jesus. Jesus is the greatest temple of all. Jesus is God with us. Emmanuel. As we read in Colossians 1.19, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. The presence of God among us 
And now we are the temple of God if we are in Christ. 1 Corinthians 6. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You don't belong to yourself. God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. It's interesting that it talks about the temple and the argument of 1 Corinthians 6. Have a look at it for homework. But then even when we get to the very end and we see that the, the holy city in the New Jerusalem, where's the temple? I saw no temple in the city. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. What's the ultimate church? It's better than any physical building you could imagine. The ultimate church is the ultimate temple, which is Jesus. The ultimate church is Jesus. He is the temple. He is the church. And his body is what it is that we are building as his word is spoken. Are you part of that church? You are if you're friends with Jesus. And if you're not yet part of that church, come to Christ, repent of your sins, turn to him and get into that church because the ultimate church is Jesus. Let me pray. Loving Father, we thank you so much that you promised that you would live amongst your people And even though they rebelled against you, you maintained your promise and you sent us Jesus. We thank you, Father, that Jesus lived amongst us and that he ultimately died and rose again so that ascending on high, he might be the great high priest who represents us before you, knowing that he has taken upon himself the full punishment that we deserve. What a church, what a temple. And what a joy to be part of it. And we pray, Father, that we would never take for granted this privilege of being a community of grace that is brought by the blood of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.